Have you ever wanted to be the first to know if aliens really exist? Well, with Nebula, you can be! Nebula is the streaming service that's home to its Probably Not Aliens, as well as our YouTube channels. And the best part? All of our content goes up early on Nebula. So when we break first contact with E.T., you'll be the first to find out. That's right, you'll be able to listen to the next episode of this show before anyone else. Plus, we post bonus content that you won't find any other place. And the best part? By signing up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probablynotaliens, you're directly supporting the show and both of us. So don't wait any longer. Join Nebula today and be the first to know if this time it really is aliens. You know, the hardest part about every podcast is that you don't know how to start them. We don't the know thing. how to start them. Well, I have a really great idea of how to start this one. Are you ready for this one? All right, I'm listening. Aliens. Is that... I've not... I only know the meme about the guy who goes like, it's aliens. Oh, I yeah. have not. I've not heard that clip out loud so i don't know what his voice is like but i imagine it's like oh it's aliens my friend it's aliens am i close we'll get to him i actually once tried astonishingly hard to interview him for a step back video really yes any any communication no um he's a ufologist and um, we'll talk about him he has the name is escaping me right at the moment, but it's an extraordinarily Greek name. So it's uh, very fun. Incredible. So I guess we could talk about this podcast that we decided to do based on a person on the internet recommending to yeah. you to record a podcast <laughs> on this format with you and your girlfriend. I forgot that that's kind of how this started. Yeah. So I had just sent out a tweet saying like, I want to start a podcast with my girlfriend. Does anyone have any ideas? And someone said, you should review every episode of ancient aliens and talk about, you know, debunk a lot of conspiracy theories. And I think I had tagged you in that being like that's or, or you had found it or something. And it was just like, well, I don't have an idea of a podcast for my girlfriend yet, but now I have this other podcast that I could do with my buddy Tristan. Yeah, you had tagged me on it. And my reply to it was that I literally had this idea sitting on the giant pile of thing to do one day when I have the motivation. <laughs> <laughs> and now we have the motivation. We yeah. got it because nothing else is going on in the world right now. And we need something to fill the voids of time that we have. Yeah, We got the equipment, the microphones. We've got it. We've got it. The we sound so good. Scotch yes. drew a pretty picture for us. Look at that cover art. You know, you love it already. So this is, it's probably not aliens, which is a podcast about things like pseudo history, pseudo archaeology, ufology from a pair of skeptics who aren't jerks. That's right. We're we're inquisitive. We are skeptical, but we're also not here to bully people. We're not here to be to be big downers, you know? Yeah, we're going to go down a lot of holes that uh, I mean, I can at least personally say I've been down in the past. Uh, these things <laughs> are interesting and fun to pick apart. And then we can 
learn not only about how the past works and how science works, but also about how people frame arguments and also about the cool history that they're sort of painting over by just saying aliens. Yes. And I I have to admit, I've never seen any single episode of Ancient Aliens. So that will be a fun thing for me to find out. And I know that it's going to be a big part of this show, but it's not going to be the only part of, of this show as well, right? Yeah, we're going to start with Ancient Aliens and Ancient Astronaut Theorists as like the opening, the first thing that we're going to focus on. There's a whole lot of content there. It's a very popular show. And it goes into a lot of the field of pseudo-archaeology and there's, there's a lot of lessons to learn. And it's a very fun uh, way to start. Yeah. And and just to kind of touch on the name of this podcast again, the reason it's called It's Probably Not Aliens is, a, again, touches on this idea of like a little bit of skepticism, but also a little bit of like, I don't know, we don't, there are some things that we don't fully have the answers to, you know? And so there could be, there could be aliens. We're, we're not going to come into every episode at least I don't think so. I, we've not recorded every episode yet, so I can't predict the future. But I, I don't imagine we're going to come into every episode going, like already having the formed conclusion of, well, there's aliens don't exist, so it's got to be some other thing, you know? Like there could, we don't know. It's probably not aliens, but we don't know. Yeah. Uh, in fact, actually, the first episode that we're doing right now is about the concept of aliens. Like just, are they possible? Is it a thing that's even reasonable? Well, convince me of it. Where do you land on that? Because like, I guess for me, it's like, I would like there to be aliens. That would be fun. And it would be cool to not be so alone in the world or in the universe. But like, I don't, I don't know if I've ever come across anything that has thoroughly convinced me just yet. And maybe we'll get to some stuff on this podcast. I don't know. But as of, as it stands right now, I, I'm, I'm kind of like, I would like there to be aliens. I don't think there are. Well, I guess the first way to look at this is the numbers game, right? Yeah. That the universe is so unbelievably, vastly, hugely, bigly giant. Yeah. That by the sheer law of large numbers, they've got to be somewhere. So here's the two ways that you can look at it, which is that big scale. Is there another intelligent alien in the universe? Just by the numbers, the answer has to be yes, because we exist. And so there's got to be at least one other one, because if it's possible, there's got to be more than one. Right. And when it comes to our galaxy, I'm less convinced. And okay. the thing is, the galaxy is probably the biggest stellar structure that we could feasibly think of as a thing that we could explore. The galaxy is 100,000 light years across, which have stars and objects between them. But to go to another yeah. galaxy would require hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years of traveling at the fastest possible speed in the universe. And okay. you just get into things where it's very unrealistic. We're going to see stuff outside of there unless there's, you know, technology and stuff that we are completely uh, yeah. ignorant of. Light, high, faster than light travel. Let me let's get every sci fi thing ever has some sort of thing like that. So we could do that. Right. How close are we to that? Actually, um, here's, so here's the thing. This, uh, is, wait, this, what? Is, this is literally <laughs> the next point that I came across because one of the things that we need to talk about is that just around the time that we're recording it, that there's been a really big breakthrough in this exact question because. No way. Yeah. So 
there's this guy named Albert Einstein who kind of put the uh, speed brakes of the universe on the speed of light, said you can't do faster than light because light and time are sort of linked in a way so that if you needed to go mm. the speed of light, it would require infinite energy and time would do weird things and right. just all sorts of things about physics basically say you can't go faster than light. Then I think, I think we've all seen interstellar. I have not actually seen interstellar. Is that what that it's about though? I think that's what it's about. I have seen interstellar. Uh, it was a long time ago and it's a movie that makes me very confused. Okay. So we'll just ignore it, but let's enter into a Mexican physicist by the name of Miguel Acubiere who thought, Hey, okay. The speed of light is a limiting factor. Yes. Mm-hmm. But Einstein's theory also states that time is kind of like a fabric. It's not nothing. It's it's a thing that can be manipulated. That's basically what gravity is. Gravity is manipulating the shape of the universe. This is going to get real funky. No, so, I like it. Hit it. Hit me with it. <laughs> so Miguel Cubiere theorized that if you can warp that fabric itself that instead of traveling faster than light by like moving an object faster than light you can make like a sort of ripple in space that moves faster than light and so you're not moving faster than light the space is moving around you it, it was oh. called it's complicated it literally like theoretical physics very complicated stuff i don't even understand because you know i don't have a phd in theoretical physics but one of the things about it is that it required something called negative energy which is sort of like an exotic type of energy that we did not know how to make or if we knew how to make it it was like in extraordinarily small numbers and we don't really know how it works because it's just like theoretical stuff but but just uh i think it was like two weeks ago from the recording date of this episode yeah there was a new paper put out that said if you use gravity in a specific way, you could create something like an Alcubierre warp bubble. Warp bubble. But using energy and physics that does exist. Okay. So, so it sounds like we're making progress here, maybe. I mean, there's no warp drive for the next, you know, this is not something that we're going to be seeing next week and probably not even in the next couple centuries. Oh, okay. Well, but- what we we've gone from the realm of it being not physically possible to physically possible, if that makes sense. Can, can I ask a question? Is this so when you're talking about this warp bubble, is this like this isn't like a wormhole or anything, right? Is this a different thing? This is a different is thing. It, yeah. A okay, wormhole okay. is a different sort of physics construct. I okay. would need to do a little bit of reading to explain it because it's okay. it's got to do with gravity and bending space and stuff, too. But it's. You're in the same ballpark. All so right. Like okay. Using similar words. Um, but today what we're going to talk about and this, I think this uh, inciting thought of the change, like this idea that the warp, the warp drive is yeah. physically possible makes us come to a very interesting question. And I think this is the one that is at the core of this show and the ancient astronaut theory and everything, which is is something will Elon Musk take credit for it? Is that what the question is? <laughs> I thought I didn't share my notes with you. <laughs> Sorry. What, what's the question? Why aren't they here if they aren't here? Where is everybody? Yeah. So this is something called the Fermi paradox. And if you're a person who loves to feel existential dread, this is a question that 
will make you uh, think late at night, probably over drinks. Mm. That is like the most logical question to ask, right? Like if, if it is possible to travel these vast distances and speeds, are we not interesting enough? Are they waiting? What are they waiting for? Well, I have pages and pages of notes as to possible uh, explanations as to why <laughs> they, they were waiting for this podcast. Maybe and now it's the most interesting thing they've ever heard. And now they're coming. They're coming on down. Come here, little aliens. Yeah. So let's start with like a little bit of a background as to the guy who posed this question that makes uh, everybody scared. Yeah. Uh, his name is Enrico Fermi, born in Italy during the uh, I grew up during the fascist times in Italy. So he had to leave with his wife mm. because his wife was Jewish in World War Two. Right. Makes sense. And he's a pretty big cheese in the theoretical physics community. He was part of the discovery of nuclear fission, which is the physical process behind atomic energy, nuclear bombs. He worked on the Manhattan Project. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. We, re- we did a video together at one point where we talked about nuclear bombs, so this should uh, we did, feel familiar. We did. <laughs> but what's important is that Enrico Fermi became famous for something called Fermi questions. He had a remarkable mind for breaking down complex problems and giving estimates that turned out to be pretty good. The most famous ones would be like, he'd find a way to guess how many grains of sand there are on Earth. And the most famous Fermi question is, how many piano tuners are in Chicago? Well, don't leave me hanging. I don't remember the answer he came up with because it was also decades ago. And they've multiplied. Yeah. But the way he came across the answer is the interesting part. He took the population of Chicago and was like, all right, roughly how many people in Chicago own pianos? You know, fine. How many people on average own pianos? Like how many clients does the piano tuner have? Right. And then how many would Chicago be able to field? And you'd have like a rough idea because he could break down the question like that. And he was very good at these kinds of, you know, brain teasers. You can also probably just Google it. Did he try Googling it? (sighs) Unfortunately, he had not invented Google yet. Okay. And just to also preface what a paradox is, because that's a word that we also use a lot, but uh, don't explain, which is a tool in philosophy where we take two statements that are true, but they're contradictory. And we have to figure out what the problem is, because it means that there is some assumption based on each side of said statement. Yeah. That implies that some assumptions wrong. And so philosophers will use paradox as a way to be like, all right, if these two things are true, but they're contradictory, then that means some assumption that led to one or the other being true is wrong. And we can then work out what that is. So all that together, yeah. 1950, Enrico Fermi's at lunch. Beautiful year. He's having lunch at Los Alamos and it's the early 50s. So this is around the time when UFO sightings are starting to pick up mm. and people are starting to discuss aliens, flying saucers. And this might be an apocryphal story, but apparently in the middle of this conversation, Fermi just says out of the blue. So where is everyone? (laughs) Given the number of stars and planets that there are in the galaxy. Right. Given the age of the universe. Of course. And even using conservative estimates on how long it would take to travel between stars. The universe should be teeming with space aliens. There should be several civilizations, layers of civilizations. Yeah, I agree. Even through conservative estimates, it would only take 
a few million years to expand across the entire galaxy. But we haven't seen any evidence of that at all. Well, it's only 2021. So as far as we know, it's only been over 2000 years since life started on Earth. Right. (laughs) I do love uh, how every single year on usually July 4th. Yeah. Where there's the whole happy 2020th (laughs) birthday, America. Congrats, America. You did it. (laughs) Um, So this is a paradox. Yeah. It's it's statistically, as I mentioned, it's statistically improbable that there's no other aliens. But given all of the factors, all of the things that would rise to create life, we should be teaming with it but we're not. Mm. So this means some sort of assumption about the universe is wrong. Yeah. And people have been trying to solve that question ever since. I was getting, that was my next question was going to be what assumption is wrong. Do we know? Or is it still up in the air? I read one book for this uh, podcast that had 81 answers. (laughs) Oh, okay. So there's, (laughs) you know, there's some possibilities out there. Yeah. But They boil down to three major answers. Okay, hit me with it. Number one, there aren't aliens. Yeah, I could have guessed that one. That seems like the obvious one that even I could have done. I I didn't even want to step in and and say it. But yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Number two, aliens exist, but for some reason they haven't communicated. They haven't interacted with us. That's but the but the for some reason makes it feel like there could be any number of additional things in there. Yeah, this is the thing. We're trying to figure out what it is that we don't know. Right. And so either there's no aliens and that would explain why we're not getting any communications. Right. Or aliens exist. And for some reason that we don't understand, they can't communicate. We just assume that they could. Yeah, they were really upset when when Netflix canceled Daredevil, I think. Was that it? I mean, that last season, they really they really nailed it they it's like they just figured out how the show was gonna run it's really good and then and then aliens never forgave us all right what's the what's the third one what's the third one the third one is probably the one more familiar with the content of the show which is that they are here or they were here ah i can't you you said all three of those and i thought they were gonna be like brain teasers that I couldn't even think of. And every time you, you said the next one, I was like, Oh, of course, Scott, what are you talking about? That's the whole point of this show that we're doing. But there's a bunch of different answers and I have a whole bunch that we can get into. So it's going to be fun. Don't worry. There's a lot of things that are going to make you feel existential dread and, and all sorts of uh, fun emotions as we tour answers to the Fermi paradox. Is that, that's going to be the big meta question of the entire of our entire show here, you think? At least this entire episode. <laughs> At least this entire episode. Well, okay, cool. Well, let's first get into the answers that have been proposed about aliens not existing. Yeah, hit me with it. And this will probably be the most existential dread one. Because okay. the main thing that comes up is that there's something that we don't know called a great filter. Okay. Which is that there's something, some aspect of the universe... That causes intelligent life to not get to the point where it can communicate with other aliens. And then the big question comes, is that behind us or ahead of us? Oh, I see. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. I in my head, I thought I immediately took it for, oh, it must be behind us. But then you're like, no, it could be in front of us. And I'm like, oh, no. So here's a few that have come up and uh, we can get into it, which is that. This could it could be a time thing. It could be 
that the conditions of the universe and in ways that we don't quite understand have only just gotten to the state where life can form safely and that we might Mm -hmm. be among the first. Yeah, I get that. There's also the possibility that Earth-sized rocky planets, which as far as we can assume is what we need to make life, although that could be in question, are Mm -hmm. rare for some reason. Although this is one that's been proposed in the past and given recent research, we're becoming pretty confident that that's not going to be the case. We're finding lots of planets out there. Yeah, we're, I was going to say, it sounds like we're finding new like Earth substitutes by the week at this point. Mm-hmm. But for a long time, there was this idea that Earth-sized rocky planets were actually not all that common. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. The other possibility is that continuously habitable zones are rare. So you've probably heard of the Goldilocks zone, right? I, I actually haven't. And listeners, this will tell you our, our relationship <laughs> on this show where Tristan will be the very smart one coming to you with all the good information. And I will be the adorable, charming one who, not to say that Tristan also isn't adorable and charming, but I will be the one sitting here being like, I don't know anything. Educate <laughs> me, please. I If I had to take a guess based on what I know of the life and times of Goldilocks, It sounds like so many different things have to happen for life to happen. And it's just really, really rare for it to happen. And so when you get that sweet spot, that just right condition, that's when then you do, that's when life happens, but it doesn't happen often. Am I close? You are, you are, uh, you're being uh, general and uh, usually the answer is more specific, but okay, you yeah. are, Hit me with it. you're hitting a whole bunch of different answers at the same time. So it works. Okay, so cool. The, the Goldilocks zone typically refers to temperature and the temperature gotcha. in relation to water, because a lot of people who study biology are pretty much convinced that without water, there isn't life or at least not life in any chemistry that we can understand. And okay. the water to do the chemistry of life needs to be liquid. It's too dispersed if it's a vapor and it's too immobile if it's solid. So it has to be liquid water. And the Goldilocks zone is where the planet is a distance from the star so that water is liquid, at least for a significant time of the year. I see. I see. That is way more specific than I thought it would be. But I like that it's specific. It kind of gives us a very strong indicator to look for. Yeah. And in our solar system, Earth is almost right at the center of this Goldilocks zone. Oh, look at us. Also important to note, just to make things a little bit more complicated, Venus and Mars would both also be in this Goldilocks zone. But because of their atmospheres, one is way too hot and one is way too cold. Ah, of course. Of course. Well, I did see a movie where... Matt Damon lived on Mars for a bit. So I think there's hope for us. There's a very funny story about that movie. Um, The Martian with Matt Damon premiered and the movie came out and everyone was very excited and almost timed perfectly for the release of The Martian. Mm -hmm. A study came out that showed the soil of Mars is full of these things called perchlorates, which is a sort of salt that would make anything that grew in it toxic. (laughs) (laughs) That's a Amazing. <laughs> I had no idea what terrible timing because yeah. like the whole thing with that book 
like the book specifically goes into so much detail to try and make it as accurate as possible, uh, almost to the detriment of the story sometimes where I'm reading it and I'm like, can you just get to the narrative part? I don't care about the, all of this science, please. But it's just like, that's so funny that when the movie came out, they're just like, by the way, this like movie based on a book that's like hailed for being so scientifically accurate uh, gets one incredibly important thing wrong. To be fair, it wasn't wrong when he did it. It's It was discovered like almost just in time for the movie to come out. That's true. That's fair. I won't hold it against you, uh, person who wrote the book whose name escapes me. And the years since then, I think that there's this idea that it might be water soluble. So all you need to do is wash it out. Oh, OK. Well, there's plenty of water on Mars. So and there's a few other Goldilocks things we can talk about, too, which is that. So maybe this habitable zone is rare, maybe that or being in this habitable zone for uh, a reliably long amount of time. Like we've been in this habitable zone for billions of years. And maybe that's not maybe that's uncommon. Maybe a lot of. Planets have elliptical orbits where it gets further away from the sun at different times of the year and that makes it too cold or that their orbits change, which means that it could come in and out of it for various times. A lot of reasons that you could think that that might be a case. So maybe the reason why Earth is so special is because it's remarkably good at being the same temperature all the time. Yeah, that's pretty Um, good. I think we're challenging that currently, but... In the grand scheme of the Earth, not bad. We're just uh, trying to turn Earth into Venus as fast as possible. That's right. We're speed running. Let's go. The other one that we could use or we could think about is that Earth needs Jupiter. (laughs) Let me explain. Hold on. Wait, Um, hold on. You're going to have to explain that one to me. All right. You know how the dinosaurs died because they got hit by an asteroid. So there's this idea that we have Jupiter in our solar system that is between us and the outside of the solar system. Okay. Which means that asteroids that might have hit Earth instead hit our big boy who just like absorbs them or who was up. Nom, 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 nom. I like asteroids. Oh, like a little Pac-Man. That's pretty fun. Yeah, because Jupiter gets hit with a ton of asteroids and it could be that Jupiter is sort of like a shield that is protecting us from most asteroids. And that oh without God. Jupiter, we would have just been blasted with rocks until there was no life on it anymore. It's like that meme where like our, like Earth is like the child that's asleep and Jupiter is like that soldier that's with the arms hand sticking out, like getting blasted by yeah. asteroids. Yeah, exactly. That's incredible. <laughs> there you go. First t-shirt. Um, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to relentlessly market this show and Let's just do it. Um, then there is the idea that we, so we aren't hit with asteroids all the time, but we're also, this is another theory that we're also hit with enough asteroids that it's good because <sighs> evolution, we've had several of these mass extinction events And if you look at the overall biodiversity on the planet, life seems to get more sturdy every single time it gets rebooted. And so that maybe life needs enough asteroids to just sort of be like a kick in the butt for evolution to get better at being alive. That's pretty good. And then soon we'll be like we will evolve to the point where asteroids will come. And they will have no effect because we are immune now. We've evolved so much we're immune to asteroids. We just got the asteroid vaccine. 
That's right. It's like the DC Comics character Doomsday who can only die the same way once. And so if you try to like hit him with an asteroid, ooh, one time, ooh, you you killed him. Second time, he's immune. Can't do it. There Has you go. Another See, way. This is your contribution. You have the deep comic book knowledge. There you go. Which so would like be useful. Maybe, maybe every time the Earth gets rebooted, we get a little like, ooh, yeah, maybe it is like almost a vaccine kind of like, ooh, now I'm immune to that maybe. I don't know. We'll see what mm-hmm. happens. It could also be that there are things that happen at home that wipe out all life on Earth. And we've thought of a few and we've had things like this in the past. There was something called Snowball Earth, which was a time that we don't quite understand what happened, but Earth was completely frozen for millions of years. Hmm. Someone left their fridge door open. Yeah, I don't know. And then there are super volcanoes, like the one that's directly underneath Yellowstone Park, which are huge volcanoes that it's possible that if they erupt, they might cause a mass extinction event into themselves. Have fun with that one. We're just waiting on that one to happen. is Is that a threat currently? Yes. This is like one of those things that's like, it's a threat in the same way that like California is going to fall into the ocean at some point is a threat. Okay. Like it's not, not a threat, but it's like, it could happen anywhere between now and like a million and a half years from now or something like that. Okay. All right. So we'll be fine. You and I will be fine. Probably. Then there are disasters in space that might wipe out all life on earth. Star Wars. Like meteors. Oh yeah, that too. But then there's also, supernovas which are when stars explode when they die if they're big enough they explode that's the one that i've heard about growing up about like how our current sun will die someday and i'm always just sitting here like boy i really hope it doesn't happen when i'm alive because that feels like that would suck so bad okay we have about one billion years before our sun starts getting really really hot to the point where earth won't survive life anymore and then a few billion years after that it's going to get bigger and eat the earth. Okay. So All right. we, we've got a while. That's, um, that's, that's better. I guess I had always pictured in my head that I'd just be like walking outside one day and then suddenly it gets really dark and then cold. And then, uh, earth is flung through space without anything to orbit around anymore. No, the sun's just going to get redder and bigger and it's going to grow bigger. Gotcha. And it's so, going to eat all the planets in the inner solar system before it then it's not big enough to have a supernova. So then it's just going to shrink and turn into a little white dwarf. It'll be very cute. Okay. So there there will be signs. We will know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We've got at least a billion years before the earth starts heating up from this. So we're good. But supernova are when bigger stars than our sun explode at the end of their life. Oh no. And most of the time it's harmless, but if one was close enough to us, Mm. It could bathe the planet in radiation and radiation, contrary to what comic books say, bad. I was going to say, it sounds like the origin of the Fantastic Four, which does sound pretty good. Or Monica Rambeau in WandaVision spoilers. And then the other one is something called a GRB or a gamma ray burst, which I guess is like we're getting on the comic book thing. Boy, we're this. All of these sound violent. Yes. So a gamma ray burst is another way of a star dying, but by doing it, it's shooting an extremely targeted, powerful beam of gamma rays, which if it were to intersect with the Earth, which, you know, it's very direct, it's very narrow. So it's not super likely that any random one would hit us, 
But if one hit okay. us, it would essentially irradiate and sterilize the surface of the planet. Well, that's good, though. We're everything's we're trying to make sure everything's sterile currently in the time of pandemic and COVID and whatnot. Yeah, we're just so, going to hand sanitize the entire yeah, surface of the planet. Yeah. It sounds helpful. So these are kinds of things that we think about as being rare phenomenon. But it could be that the amount of time that planets need to develop intelligent life is long enough that one of these will hit a planet and therefore that's why aliens never really make it. Oh, and so we've just been like wildly lucky. Or we've just, you know, not run out the clock yet. Yeah, that that's true. <laughs> you you sure do have a, a great way of turning any positive spin that I have into a hopelessly dreadful spin. Okay, there's here's some more fun ones. Okay, um, great. There's one idea that plate tectonics are necessary and unique. So our planet is uh, essentially a cracked egg with a bunch of big plates that are moving around. That's why we have mountains, why we have earthquakes, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that. It's partially responsible for creating a magnetic field around the planet, which is why we have an atmosphere and why we don't get bathed in radiation and <laughs> creates a diverse geology on the surface of the planet, which might be necessary to make evolution again, make life more robust and stronger because you have different biomes and things like that is due to things like mountains and oceans and all those kinds of things. Right. And I guess it also just gives, it makes sure that you have little, all sorts of different chances for life to grow. Cause like there are certain places where we, where we just don't have life, but we still got all these other places where life was like, yeah, I can make this work. Yeah. Like for example, say if uh, something happened to earth today that made uh, the entire planet frozen, then Mm -hmm. the Arctic animals would, would be able to survive. All those polar bears don't have to swim anymore. Yeah. And so the diversity of different areas does help with the longevity of a planet. The other thing, too, is that plate tectonics sort of regulates planet temperature. And again, we're talking about how one of the things that life would need is to have a stable temperature. Right. That makes sense. And then there's also the moon. Mm -hmm. The moon Mm -hmm. is particularly interesting. Like not many planets have moons that are as big compared to the size of the planet as ours. Mm hmm. It's theorized that a long time ago, another planet hit the Earth and sort of the moon is what came out of that. I have heard that. I was going to mention that that is a theory that I have heard before. So the moon does a lot for us. It rotates very regularly and it stabilizes our orbit. This means that we have we spin at a much more stable orbit, which means that our seasons are much more predictable as well. It creates tides. Tides Mm. are also important for life. They think that high tide and low tide and like tide pools might have been the little Petri dishes that created life in the first place. Oh, yeah, I see that. And also that the moon and its gravity is possibly responsible for having plate tectonics. And so that sort of feeds into that as well. Interesting. So it could be that not many planets get smashed with another planet and create a moon. And that turns out to be necessary for life. Yeah. And then you, uh, at the same time, you know, in order for the moon to help with tides, you have to have the water at the right little Goldilocks state. And you got to make sure that you have uh, another planet protecting you from everything that's being shot your way. And you got to make sure you got all everything else that we've talked about. It sounds like you're saying that there's just not all, there's potentially not a lot of other planets that are quite as special as our little boy yeah yeah like that there's multiple different factors that we had to have all happen right at the same time but this also sounds like it could just be the fact that we have a very limited imagination because it seems 
to us that we're only predicting that only life can arrive on planets that look just like ours. But also it could be that one of these factors, and this is sort of the thing, we're trying to figure out the answer to why there doesn't seem to be anybody. And if the answer is that there's no aliens, then maybe one of these is really important. We don't know which one. Mm -hmm. Could be all of them, could be one of them, could be a couple of them, doesn't, we don't know. Uh, There's another one. And this one is uh, putting the thing really far behind us, which is that abiogenesis is rare, which is the chemistry that results in life coming from non-life. You know, the primordial Mm. soup, RNA being made from uh, ancient chemicals and chemistry in our really ancient Earth. Mm. It could be also that eukaryotic cells are rare, which is a sort of more complex form of life, because like a lot of life on Earth are something called uh, prokaryotes, which are very, very simple. And it could mm. be that the more complex version, eukaryotes, which use DNA instead of RNA, which is yeah. it, a lot of biology to get into. But it could be that this this evolution to a more complex form of life that has organelles and all these things is rare. There's also mitochondria. The powerhouse uh, of the cell. Yeah. The powerhouse of the cell. I got you. Um, I got that mito- one covered. <laughs> <laughs> mitochondria, because of the powerhouse of the cell, might be very important for having life because uh, mitochondria gave us a whole lot of energy that we can use to, say, make very complicated life because, you know, energy and complexity are linked. The thing about mitochondria is that they have their own genetic code, and it's thought that at some point very, 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 very early in life, an ancient cell ate a mitochondria and a mitochondria was sort of a life form of its own and that they sort of developed a symbiotic relationship. And this is why today mitochondria have their own genetic code. They have that their own little wild. DNA. They're like little buddies. That is Did, so it that <laughs> you have let me just say, you have said so many interesting <laughs> things since we've started recording. That might be the most interesting thing that I've heard of. And that's saying a lot, considering yeah. everything else you've thrown at me today. So mitochondria are almost like they could be considered symbiotic organisms, but it's been so long. They're basically just part of us now. That's but they so create cool. So much energy that they are possibly one of the things that makes multicellular life possible. And it could be that something like that is extremely rare. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having fun already. When you were a kid, I don't know, because you're a bit younger than me, so this might have just been a little bit before your time, but do you remember Parasite Eve? No, I have no idea what that is. So it was a video game where the idea behind it was that mitochondria were like not so much a friend of ours, but they were like a thing that was like parasitically hiding in our cells waiting for the right moment. And then uh, when things turned, it like turned us into monsters or made people spontaneously combust or things like that. That's that sounds so fun. I love that. I mean, I I would hate it if it was real, unless that is how we truly unlock our superhuman abilities like the X-Men and whatnot. But I I mean, if it's just like bad and it's just like a time bomb ready to go off, don't like that. But I do like everything else that you're saying. Hmm. So so it could be that a lot of these chance events that happened in the early history of life are necessary and rare, which means that there's no other way for cells to make enough energy to be multicellular without having something like mitochondria. And what happened with us with mitochondria was extremely rare and wouldn't happen in other cases. Unfortunately, we only have a sample size of one, so we have no idea how common these things would be. (laughs) That is true. But we're just speculating what kinds of things might be 
the thing that seemed implausible or very, very rare to cause life to be rare. I getcha. So it, it almost sounds like I'm, I'm kind of torn here a little bit, Tristan, because on one hand, it sounds like we're all we're kind of special little snowflakes insofar as all we know is we're the only life out there, the only intelligent life out there. And that's pretty exciting. Look at us. Go us. We're cool. We're special. But it also sounds like it's scary. <laughs> like, I want there to be other things out there. There's actually... um an interesting statement, and we'll get into this a little bit, but Stephen Hawking was under the impression that there's some other answers that are spooky, okay. but uh, it could be. But uh, but under this under this, like we'll go into this assumption that there aren't aliens. So we are the sure. only intelligent life in the galaxy. OK, I guess that would mean that we're under some sort of imperative to go out and check it all out and maybe not do climate yeah. change so that our we, you know, of this be extremely good. rare, precious planet we live on doesn't just, you know, fizzle out because we decided we wanted to burn dead animals for fuel. Now, let me ask you this really quick, and I'm sorry if this derails the conversation, but I, you watch Star Trek. Uh, a lot of it, yes. <laughs> yeah. So there's like an episode where they i think they find of next generation where they find in an, an original alien like message that basically said like hey we are we discovered that we are the only aliens out there in the whole world whole wide universe and we thought that was really sad so we took we just separated to all these different planets and what happened was all these different races of aliens all these different species of aliens like klingons and humans and vulcans and whatnot ever everything spawned from this one species do you think that could be us maybe not that directed but there is a possibility that the chemistry that was needed to make life from non-life does seem like it was rather alien and there is something strange about the fact, and I, I talk about this a little bit later, but it's it's fine to get into, which is that there's something that we don't understand because we don't know a whole lot about this early time in life's history, that all life on Earth comes from a single line of genetic code going all the way back to the first living cell, right? Mm -hmm. Like we didn't we didn't see any evidence that life evolved multiple times. It only did once. And we don't know what the reasoning behind that is. And it is used by some people. Now, it's a there's a lack of an explanation, which doesn't mean aliens. But then some people will fill that gap, which happens a lot where we don't know a thing. So they'll fill the gap in with aliens. And it could be the gap is that life came from somewhere else. An asteroid, uh, an alien yeah. or something. Prometheus. I've seen that movie Prometheus, as well. Yeah. So you're saying that we know that life only happened spontaneously once and not multiple times at least as far as we can tell because we share all almost all of our genetic code with every other living thing that we've ever seen like if you were to take a human possible? and a dandelion we have a lot of similar genes which makes me think that or makes yeah, scientists yeah. believe that we all have like a similar origin yeah is it possible that we don't have any evidence for other life spontaneously evolving because when it did it just died that could be the case. That could be an answer. Yeah. So that's all the stuff that comes from our early history. So it is possible that a lot of stuff in the chemistry or early evolution, the big turning points that turned life from non-organic compounds in you know the ocean to 
complex multicellular life, that that process is very hard to do. Mm -hmm. But then there's some that think that maybe that has happened multiple times, but that there are stages afterwards because there are some things that are unique about life on Earth. Yes, but there are some things that are unique about humans specifically. So we are the only species or I shouldn't say we're the only species, but we are one of very few species that have hands capable of using tools. Mm -hmm. And it could be that the ability, the biological capability to use and make tools is rare. Because if you think about it, the only other animals that really do use tools regularly are also close relatives to us. Mm. Chimpanzees use stones to crush nuts. They use leaves as umbrellas. They use leaves for cleaning. They even chew them up to make sponges. But that is a chimpanzee. They are very similar to us in a lot of ways. Yeah. So it could be that the just just making the connection to use tools is a Mm. rare thing. So there could be lots of aliens out there. Lots of like, you know, we go to a lot of planets and it could be lush planets full of life, but they're all just animals and plants or like that kind of like thing. Like they're just there isn't a human analog that has like developed technology. Mm -hmm. I get you. That's interesting. Yeah. And it could also be that some do develop technology, but it just doesn't go very far. It doesn't advance very fast. And to talk about this, we could talk about one of our ancestors or one of our not ancestors, one of our cousins, the Neanderthals. Mm. So Neanderthals were very similar to humans and they did develop tools, but not very quickly. Studying Neanderthal remains has had us come to the conclusion that compared to humans, they showed very little creativity and made little to no interest in innovating new things. So compared to humans, they did not technologically develop very much. They went 100,000 years without really developing new technology. And it could really? Be, yeah. It could be that humans just are technology. Like we are uh, a really, really rare exception of being obsessed with tool making and technology and yeah. such. Neanderthals were like, hey, if it's not broke, you know, don't fix it. And then look at them. Where are they now? They're nowhere. Yeah. And there could be reasons for that. Uh, one, our level of intelligence might be rare, although that is probably so this idea that you probably hear a lot, which is that, you know, we're more evolved or that any species is more evolved than another one. That's actually not true. Mm. There's no such thing as something that is more or less evolved than anything else. Everything is. Yeah. Everything evolves to adapt to a situation. And we just happened to adapt a high level of intelligence for a specific situation that was going on at the time that we evolved. Yeah. And it was, I imagine it was incredibly beneficial, which is why we are still having it today, which is why we have, you know, iPhones and zoom calls. That's why you are halfway across the continent and we can talk to each other in real time. That's right, because it was beneficial to your yours and mine survival. That boy, that grammar right there, that really got me just then. Mm-hmm. I really messed that one up. But there are lots of animals on Earth that are just successful as humans that didn't use intelligence to adapt. There are more ants on Earth than there are humans. They are objectively a more successful type <laughs> of animal than we are, and they didn't do it with hyper advanced brains. Can I, can I tell you when I was a kid, I used to like be terrified of stepping on ant hills because I always had this idea in my head that one day they were going to 
wage a war against humans and they'd be like hey if you if you didn't kick one of our hills you're good you're one of the good ones but if you did we're coming after you kid where'd you grow up uh south carolina Fire. Okay, I was about to say, if you had grown up in like Texas or something, it'd be like, ah, I had different reasons to not step on anthills. Yeah, we had a lot of fire ants, if that's kind of where you were going with it. I definitely okay. had that. Yeah. Up here, we don't we don't have any fun ants. So that's uh, <laughs> the worst we can hope for is carpenter ants. Um, <laughs> I'll fix your shed for you. Yeah. So it could be that intelligence of a human level is not a guaranteed uh, convergent thing that's going to evolve several times and be, um, you know, as easy to replicate. Like it's not that it's not a thing that particularly is a winning strategy when it comes to uh, evolving and adapting. It just happened to work for us. And there's some ways that we can say that this is not the case. We've seen some forms of intelligence evolve in very different species on this planet, octopuses, Mm -hmm. uh, cetaceans, so we have some evidence to think that maybe intelligence is a fairly successful strategy, but there's also growing evidence to show that um, what's called convergent evolution. Have you, do you know that word or does that term make sense? Uh, was that, was there a, a YA series called convergence or something like that? <laughs> okay. Um, so convergent evolution is this idea that. Yeah. Just ignore everything I'm yeah. saying. It's fine. <laughs> um, Convergent evolution is this idea that there's certain things that just work and so that they've evolved multiple times over the history of life. And so that these are things that we could expect to see in space or on other planets, because if we like, say, evolved eyes multiple Mm -hmm. times, then it's possible that that's just like a thing that in our laws of physics that we just gravitate towards. Yeah. And there's a growing area of evolution that shows that it's possible that convergent evolution is not as common as we thought. For example, and now you all right, you want you want a fun experiment. Yeah, hit me with it, Bill Nye. So there's something called the eyeless gene. And when we've started to mess around with the DNA of animals, we started to realize that there are genes for coding to make different things that when mm-hmm. transplanted to other animals will make that animal's version of that thing. Whoa. So what this means is like, if you were to take the genes that fruit flies have that make them develop their eyes, if you mm-hmm. were to remove those genes from their code there, they would develop without eyes, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then if you were to take the same code from this like body planning part of the genome and transplant that to a mouse and use the same code, the mouse would grow eyes, but they would be mouse eyes. Oh, wild. So what this means is that there are genes that are for the building of body parts that are interchangeable enough. They speak the same sort of genetic language enough. So if this gene in a fruit fly means grow an eye, and if this gene means grow an eye in a mouse... Yeah. Then that means that they probably both had eyes evolve the same way from the same ancestor, which makes us think that convergent evolution is actually less common than we think it is. That's really interesting. Well, those body planning genes are actually like really fascinating because they've also been able to use it to make stuff like like if they put grow antenna in the part where it's going to put the eyes, they actually would make like fruit flies that grow antenna where their eyes should be and things like that. So, Oh no, don't put that imagery in my head. (laughs) But it does show that 
these sort of body planning type genes probably have their origins in a time where there was a common ancestor between uh, fruit flies and mice, which was a very long time ago, which means that things like eyes and limbs probably evolved before fruit flies and mice split ways. So that makes us think that when we used to think in the past that eyes and these different organs and different uh, appendages evolved independently mm-hmm. and they were just successful strategies, turns out less common than we thought. So it could be that intelligence is just not a common evolution, despite us thinking it is because it does show up uh, multiple times. And last has a lot to do with what we're doing now, which is that language might be really rare. Mm. So this is something language on the sophistication and the ability to exchange abstract ideas does seem to be a thing that is unique to humans. Other animals do communicate, and there has been a lot of effort to try and figure out what's going on with dolphins. I was going to say dolphins. I know people try to decode whale songs and all sorts of fun stuff like that. Don't prairie dogs have some sort of way of communicating with each other? I don't know. I just There's a a lot of animal language, Mm -hmm. but one of the things that we specifically have unique is the ability to abstract and the the level of complexity. There's two different ways of looking at it. There's the sort of older idea that Noam Chomsky was famous for coining, which is the idea that language is sort of this biological drive within the human species and that it is like a very biological thing and that the the very structures of language are mm-hmm. baked into our biology. But this is also being challenged by linguists. And there is an idea that language is a thing that we developed socially and that without other people, we don't really pick up language. Oh, interesting. This is still a thing that is uh, debated in linguist circles. Okay. All right. I get you. Jury's still out on it, but it's an interesting thought. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, we might have a unique ability to have complex language because we have a jaw and uh, just a whole mouth throat capability to make a lot of complicated sounds that a lot of animals. That's true. I've never heard a whale say a four syllable word before. So that's a good point. (laughs) Um, Of course, this is probably one of the more wishy-washy ones, but it could be a thing. It could be that language is an extremely rare thing to develop and that when we go out into space, we might find there are, you know, intelligent aliens that have tools but because they can't uh, communicate in language, they can't write things down, they can't share things that they're stuck in the sort of technological development of cavemen. OK, that is an interesting idea, because I guess you, I guess you have this sort of bias when you're a human like you and me, that technology is always constantly advancing forward. Like there's going to be a new iPhone every year, you know, that as soon as you buy some, a a new computer, they came up with another one. Like every technology is constantly advancing all the time, always. But there is precedent, like you were saying about, you know, species who don't need to keep making improvements because what they got works for them. And they don't push forward with it. And so that's a good point. There could be aliens out there who don't, who haven't communicated with us because they're still, you know, rubbing sticks and stones together to, that's all I need. That's all I need. 
And yes, yeah, science might not also be inevitable. It could be that we have language and we just never figure out the scientific method. We never figure out uh, advanced chemistry. We never figure out radio. We just never think to progress beyond very simple technology for the same reason. Yeah. We just yeah. don't need to. So that's that's all the answers we got for the possibility of aliens not existing. <laughs> it feels like we should make this a, a two-parter. We did not intend for this to happen, but hit us with a tease. Hit us with a tease here. So we talked about all these different ways that aliens might not exist. I'm getting a little bummed. It means that there's no one like us, That and that's cool. Look at us. We're so special and unique, but what if I don't want to be? What if I want there to be aliens out there? Do you have any any sort of tease that might give me a little bit of hope? Yeah, we could be thinking that we're special or that it's hopeless and that, you know, we're just this one rare special thing in the center of the universe. But we have a long history of thinking that we're a special thing in the center of the universe. And we've almost always been wrong. You know, we thought we were the center of the universe. We thought that the sun was the center of the universe. So space yeah. is really, really big. And it could be that there are aliens out there. It's just that for some reason we haven't communicated with them or we have and we just didn't recognize it as such. So in the next episode of this show, we're going to go into possible answers to the Fermi paradox that mean that there are aliens and that there is something else that we assumed that is the reason why we haven't made contact yet. I can't believe you're going to leave me hanging like that. Now I have to subscribe to this podcast and wait for another episode to come out. Give it a five-star review on iTunes. I would appreciate that. We both would. Where I guess if you want to follow us on social media, we have uh, some Twitter and Instagram accounts. Probs Not Aliens, P-R-O-B-S, and then Not Aliens. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the very first episode of It's Probably Not Aliens. And we'll get to that big probably, the uncertain of it, next time. Cool. Do you want to like do some like personal sort of like plugs and stuff for, for you and me and whatnot? I mean, if you like this work, you should subscribe to Step Back History and NerdSync. Uh, both of which have very little to do with what we've talked about today, but <laughs> yours more so though, I feel, uh, but there's, uh, but it, we both do a lot of work, uh, doing really fun media. If you want to hear about comics and media and, uh, Scooby-Doo and Bob Ross, <laughs> you can subscribe to NerdSync and I do stuff about history and sort of how it intersects with today in our daily lives. Yeah. So go check both of those out. There'll be links in the description as well. And uh, I can't wait to hear about all these aliens that definitely exist next time on the podcast. You'll have to wait. Take care. Take care, everyone. Bye.